Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in chapter 10 this morning, verse 26 through 39. Page 1009 or 10 in the Pew Bible. I forgot to look. But I think that's what it was last week. And if I'm right, you're within one page. Well, I'm the first one up in the morning with the kids. And we, we meet up and pray in the basement. And so I've got three olders, uh, 12 to 14, and then I've got two youngers. They're both three. And I meet with the older three, and we read the Bible and pray. Just a couple chapters and then pray. And sometimes we get greeted and intruded upon by one of the littles, and that's just fine. But I could hear Nora coming down the stairs on Thursday. And I couldn't hear her because of her footsteps. She was very quiet. I think she might have been trying to sneak up on us. But because she was eating a Cheeto. <laughs> so you could hear it. And then it got closer and another crunch and another crunch. So I made my way up to the edge by the stairs. And I scared her. And the video <laughs> camera was on. Her response was to shrink back. It was involuntary. It was in a moment. Well, the Christian life is it's not like that. Jesus has promised us that we will be persecuted. We not, should not be surprised or scared at fiery, at fiery trials, caught off guard. And we know that. So what do we say to one another when a brother or a sister in this room shrinks back deliberately? Over time. The author of Hebrews wrote to this first century congregation with this very kind of concern. And he gave us the kinds of words we can say to each other. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence. Which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God. You may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is God's word for us this morning. The topic of judgment is uncomfortable. It's the nature of the thing. Judgment. Certainly, when one judge is perfectly righteous and just in his judgments, and the guilty are clearly and truly guilty. And that is the case in our relationship with God, apart from Christ. It's just an uncomfortable topic. The cross was not comfortable, because the cross was a judgment where sin fell on the innocent Son of God. He reviled sin. He despised the shame of the guilt for sin and the punishment for sin. But he took it in love 
for you and me and in obedience to the Father. Judgment is an uncomfortable topic. It seems particularly uncomfortable to be talking about judgment with each other in this way, doesn't it? He's writing to a church, he says, by which you were sanctified. He says, recall former days, after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with sufferings. And at the end, he says, we're not those who shrink back and are destroyed. But he says, if we go on sinning deliberately, we should have a fearful expectation of judgment. Well, make no mistake, he is writing to a Christian church. And make no mistake, he is talking about eternal damnation, hell, God's wrath for all eternity. Let's just ruminate on what this judgment is from the words we have here on the page. It is a future prospect, a future judgment, a fearful expectation. It comes later. God's wrath is revealed from heaven in all manner of ways against sinners and from tornadoes to the trouble we have in our body. There are reminders that we're under the curse of sin and God even gives us over to to what we want at times. Oh, but this is that end time judgment that will last forever that he speaks of. That fearful expectation we can get. We can get too used to Uh, catastrophes. We have hurricanes to the south, a little bit of rain and wind here. If we didn't know it from the news, we'd have no idea that Sanibel Island was decimated. Fires to our west. Trains coming off the rails to the north. You see a catastrophe and in your news feed or on the news, and it naturally, because you need to move on with your day, you move on to the next thing, and the sun is up and everything's all right. This is a catastrophe coming. It's, it's promised. It, it is, real judgment is coming. And, and some of this author's readers apparently ought to have a fearful expectation of it, even if the sun appears to be up now. It's a future judgment. It'll be a furious judgment. The fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Think of the a crime, a sin, an abuse, unless you fill in all the blanks. The most wretched, treacherous thing a human could do. To you, a loved one, and imagine the revulsion you would have against the one who would do that. Our Lord's abhorrence of our sin is that without measure. And it doesn't go away. It'll be a furious judgment, and rightly so. Merciless. Our author here calls to our memory the Old Covenant under Moses. He makes a comparison, that that typical in this book, that lesser to greater. Hey, if under Moses it was like this, how much more? Anyone, verse 28, who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that wasn't for everyday sins. That was for a deliberate rejection of God's law and the Lord himself who gave it blasphemy and on two or three witness shows you how important it is and would be executed on account it says without mercy that's rough but that's what execution would be under the old covenant thankfully it wasn't an everyday thing and this was a pretty decent deterrent Oh, but how much more if if when we die apart from Christ, the Lord won't show us any mercy. And that day, he didn't show any mercy to them when they rejected him on account of what they knew. 
How much more on account of all that we've come into if we reject it? Will we not be shown mercy? It's just. Look at all these words that indicate as much. Verse 29. Do you think will be deserved? How much worse punish, punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who trampled underfoot the Son of God? Verse 30. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The Lord will judge his, his people. It's a punishment. It's deserved. It's repayment. It's vengeance. And it's the Lord's. And he's a just judge. It's also personal. It is a fearful thing, verse 31, to fall into the hands of the living God. What an image that is. Well, what is it like? Well, that's what it's like. That's what he's talking about. Who's it for exactly? We should want to know that. And we might be conflicted in even asking that question. Look in there, verse 26. It says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and I think, oh, well, uh, yep. Uh, not only do I go on sinning, but I sin in deliberate ways knowing what I'm doing. And so do you. So is this, for, is this for us? And then we think, well, we know we know. First John uh, says we have an advocate. If we, go, if we continue to sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It's the problem is if we deny that we're sinners. So, so if we confess that we're sinners, we're in trouble. But if we confess our sins, we're forgiven. What is it? Which is it? And then the cross, wasn't that to take care of sin? And isn't that great promise of the new covenant that's the foundation for all of new covenant promises, the full forgiveness of sins? Isn't that why we're here? So what is this doing here? Who is it for? That's the question we want to answer. Well, we want to listen carefully. And it will help for us not to in interpret the rest of the passage through the lens of the word sinning. It'll help us to interpret the word sinning here, sinning deliberately through the lens of the rest of the passage so that we might be clear as to whether we are in danger of this kind of judgment or, or not. We'll divide our time in two ways today. Signs you should be afraid. I can't see what else this passage is trying to do for some. Let's strike fear into you. Signs you should be afraid and, and then signs that you have nothing to fear. Let's start with signs that you should be afraid. Verses 26 through 31. I see three of them. Right there in verse 29. You see them too. There's a little list. Three signs in the first place. The first sign, how you regard the identity of Jesus. How you regard the identity of Jesus. How much worse the punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. It's important to say here that in any congregation, there are, it's a mixed audience of hearers. And I think that's one of the keys to understanding how to read the book of Hebrews at these points and to hear it right. He's got a congregation like ours. It's not that, it's not that within the true church... Or that there ought ever to be members of a church who aren't regenerate or don't actually believe, but certainly within hearing, and sometimes there's the appearance to a person or to others of genuine Christian faith, but over time it begins to show that it is not quite that. And Jesus spoke about appearances in the parable of the soils and the word that would get choked out from the sun scorching it, or thorns choking it out, or how the cares of this world and desires for other things lead one away from the word. Oh, but in some, the word grows fruit. So you can, with time, you can see what you've got. And that, that maybe can be unsettling in a moment, but over time, it's actually, it's actually settling. It's meant to be that. It can settle things one way or the other for us concerning ourselves or, or others. This is a mixed, mixed hearers. And there are some in this room who are plotting how to get out. 
You're here because it's expected. You're here because there's a family member you come with. You're here because you've always come and you're just noodling on the way out. You're inching your way out. I mean, out of Christ, out of the faith. You've sung and professed these things, but it's not just that you've got questions, because we all have questions and we're all growing in our under- we all we, we will grow in our understanding of God for all eternity, and we don't all know the whole Bible as well as we'd want. Uh, so we know that. No, but we've got questions that we're asking that are way under the surface of things. And they're coming from deep down. And they betray not an everyday curiosity or even a doubt here and there, but a deep conviction that this is not true. In the first place, that the Son of God, that Jesus was not the Son of God. We do not agree with his own testimony concerning his identity or what the scriptures say about him. That he is the radiance of the glory of God. That he was fully God and fully man. True humanity. True God. That he is now the Son at the right hand of the Father. Ruling and reigning in righteousness. All of this While it has always sounded abstract, and it is, and we may have believed it in a way by faith, not so much anymore. And maybe it's just drifting right now, but it's drifting faster and faster and faster. And we don't have good reasons not to indulge in this sin or in that sin, and frankly, we kind of like it. And maybe we're not too far from stepping out. How do you regard the identity of the Son of God? Are you trampling him underfoot? In other words, regarding the Son of God as worthless. Just some other man who's got way too much attention. How do you regard his work? How do you regard his work? The second sign that you've profaned the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified. I'm going to take the by which you were sanctified as phenomenological, a matter of appearances. This is not unlike how other scriptures and the apostles speak. There are some that go out from us so that it's plain they never were of us, but otherwise it sure looked like it. No, have you trampled the blood of the covenant? Do you regard the cross, the sufferings in his life, and the suffering in his death, and then his resurrection, as godless? This is profane. That means to call it unholy. In other words, maybe you believe Jesus died and lived, and that some of these accounts are true, but God's not in it. In your mind. In fact, Christianity is worth a whole lot of trouble. So maybe it's the opposite. He's not a solution to anything. He's the problem with everything. Would you say that God isn't in his sufferings and his his death? Maybe he died, but not as a sacrifice. Maybe he died willingly, but, but not as an offering for sinners. Maybe he was good, but not innocent. Maybe we all need forgiveness, but but not through him or from him. Maybe there really is evil in the world, but he's not the one to solve it. And all this talk of putting his enemies under his feet one day, that's not where the answer is. Jesus is not the answer. He may have shed his blood, but his blood really isn't different than yours and mine. How do you regard the identity of this man, Jesus? How do you regard his suffering, his work, his blood? The blood of the covenant is his blood, that which had been promised in all of these pages and all that all of these stories and promises were looking forward to. Or is it just another man's blood? And you may not be all the way there to saying this, 
that you may be inching your way there. If we go on sinning deliberately, I think that the the sin in the background underneath these passages in the book of Hebrews is that of apostasy, of rejecting Jesus as God's Son. And it doesn't mean that there is an application for you here if in fact you're going on sinning deliberately with an affair or a persistently over many years imagined affair with an addiction to lust or layers of lies on which you've built your life and you have not come clean with for the cost would be great although you know that's what obedience to Jesus would demand. I mean, it may be that there is, there is a sin so heinous that you refuse to own and come clean with that you ought to be fearful of judgment. And maybe there are other Bible passages that would speak to that. But the concern this author has for this audience is that sin of leaving Jesus as the Son of God and leaving His cross as your only sacrifice for sin. There's a third sign here. And has outraged the Spirit of God. Feels so personal, doesn't it? How we regard the Spirit of God and specifically the new covenant blessings that come from The cross where the Son of God died, these are all connected. The Spirit is that one promised in the Old Testament that applies the work of Christ to you, gives you new life and the full forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God in which there's nothing between you. These new covenant blessings, are they useless to you? The Son of God and His identity worthless? The the work of Jesus on the cross, godless, and all of these blessings not really useful to you. You don't really need the grace of God through the Son of God applied by the Spirit of God. You're good. And it says in this way, you have outraged the Spirit of grace. Oh, our God, if you know Him at all, if you hear the preaching here, I pray, it's not just ready for you to mess up so he can be outraged at you, like some of us dads and me on the wrong day with a kid, or like a boss who's having a hard time. Now, there are people in our life who snap and they jump, and it's like they love to be unhappy with you. That's not, that's not this, God. But to reject the Son of God, to spurn his work on the cross, and to count these new covenant blessings as useless to you, oh, there's no worse place for you to be. And I hope that you feel it with this line, that the spirit of grace is outraged at your rejection of the grace and the Son of God. So should you be afraid this morning? Well, maybe... You, you'll have to know that. Maybe if we got to talking, I could, I could tell you. It would take a lot for me to start talking like this to you, but, but I could. And I hope you could eventually start talking like this to each other if you get close enough to where someone's at and what they're thinking, what they're plotting. Should you be afraid? Well, maybe if you're denying the identity of Jesus, despising his blood, disregarding his blessings, maybe yes, you should be afraid. In which case, I warn you, if you fall away from the living God, you leave off these truths, let it be plain to you that you will not ultimately fall away, but into the hands of the living God. That if you reject the outstretched arms of the Son of God on the cross, dying for you, metaphorically for our purposes, welcoming you, If you leave that sacrifice, there is no sacrifice for you. If you leave his outstretched arms and walk on by, not to be associated with that crook, you leave his outstretched arms and you outrage the the Lord. 
He says there's no sacrifice that remains because there isn't one if you leave the Son of God. That's what that means. Jesus doesn't keep re-sacrificing himself, and it's not like there are other sacrifices which are also kind of good if you do enough of them. No, there's none. In the old covenant system, which was temporary, that's over, and it was temporary and deficient anyways, as we've talked about. So for these readers to revert back to Old Testament plans and structures and patterns, there's no hope there. This is where they were leading. You must bow to the Son of God, crucified and raised. If you do not fear God properly in this life, then you, yes, today are the one who has every reason to fear. But this is the thing. It's precisely how you know that you are in very big trouble that you're unfeeling when you hear this, which is why we have to get to each other before we're, we're that far out. And the encouragement is that if you hear this and, and you qualify according to these signs and there's sensitivity to this warning, there is a kind of a fearful expectation welling up. Well, then you know what to do with that. Not to navel gaze and wonder, you know, which category you're in of people. And no, like run to Christ now. That's what this is calling. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Draw near to God through Christ with a conscience sprinkled clean from his perfect blood. This is available to you as long as you are, as long as you are alive. But if you plan to leave or if you have already in your heart good and left the Son of God and His work and these new covenant blessings, then they were never yours, and yes, you should have a fearful expectation of judgment. The fury of fire that consumes God's adversaries that is just. And there is no mercy for you if you meet God apart from Jesus. That's what this is saying. It is a fearful thing, friend, to fall into the hands of the living God. So should you be afraid? Maybe. And maybe not. We struggle with the topic of fear as a motive in the Christian life, and there's good reason for that. But it's not entirely a bad motive. Maybe you were only made to be afraid of God, and that was the only reason to come to Him, And so, you've realized there's a reason to come to God rather than just something to get away from. He's merciful and gracious, and He is good, and He's all satisfying, and so you've come to Him by faith. But be careful not to become unbiblical in your use of fear with one another, or even with yourself, if you find yourself checking some of these boxes here. So there's a place for fear. And consider that being afraid of judgment is not altogether a bad reason for running to Jesus, the justifier. And it's not necessarily a sign that you're not coming in faith for what is a terrifying expectation of judgment that leads you to run to God Accept faith that his word is true, that God is holy, that you are a sinner. And what is running to him but the acknowledgement that he also is merciful, just like he said. We just have to put fear in its proper place. Use it the right way and not the wrong way. Not in manipulation and not to the detriment or the exclusion of, of the grace of God that draws us. And his kindness which patiently waits for us and that leads us to repentance. Well, for those in danger of drifting, who are drifting, who are way out at the edge, even if you're in the room, you need this next part of the passage because there's encouragement for you to come more than just fear for staying away from Jesus. It will be helpful to you to have Proof that Jesus is worth it as 
as a compelling reason to come with him and stay with him. And for the rest of us who are drawing near and seeking him imperfectly as sinners, yes, but not digging in in hard-hearted resentment and rejection like is described here, this next section will be needful for us as well. For there is something to say and to be gained for looking at our past and mining our past and what God has done in us and brought us through for our endurance as we face the future. And it's a good thing for us that the author doesn't leave us with verse 31 in this book or even in this section, but verse 32 begins with a but. So let's move into the second part of our sermon then. We move from signs that you should be afraid, and I've given you three of them, and now signs that you have nothing to fear. Signs that you have nothing to fear. Verses 32 through 39. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one therefore don't throw away your confidence which has great reward as the preacher writes and preaches through this book to his audience he knows that some are plotting an escape and he severely warns them and equips the whole church to speak to them in this way we've heard moments ago but he knows that that's not everyone and where everyone's at And he's followed this church's life and he doesn't want to squash them. He means to encourage them and he does so now by helping them with their own stories from their own past. And many of those watching the door to leave were there for this. And this can call to mind what they've seen, if not in themselves and others. Three signs that you have nothing to fear. First, That you have stayed with Christ over time. That you've stayed with Christ over time. But recall the former days. These folks have been believers a while. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So you've stayed with Christ over time. Now for those of you who have just come to Christ so recently, well, there's time to qualify for this. The thief on the cross died safe next to Jesus and entered paradise without too much time to prove anything to anybody. But if you've been a Christian some time, you've stayed with Christ, there is reason for encouragement to stay with him. Now let's talk about how we look to our past as Christians and what we do with it. Now some look to the past, if you will, someone else's past, a family member's past, and focus on a moment of time when someone else believed by faith. A moment of faith in time and take comfort from that in the face of what you see happening in the life of your loved one. And I'll completely grant that it is from a place of compassion and love that you eagerly desire for them to be saved and even that you search for some reason to be sure that they might be. But the scriptures do not point us to a moment of faith in the past. Others of you may look to your own past And if the Lord was kind and you grew up in a home where you were trained in the scriptures and even in an age and in a place that positively encouraged faith in Jesus, maybe you haven't undergone the kinds of trials that we read about here to give you the assurance that you would would want. You didn't become a Christian after an obnoxious and destructive life of overt sin. Although you know that you were saved from sin and all of that could come out of your heart and you sinned in egregious ways, just not in ways that were so destructive. Maybe the Lord saved you young. And you look back on your past and because you don't remember that moment of faith, 
you're anxious about the past. And to both of you, I could say, look to the present. What is your confession? What are you holding fast to? Who are, to whom are you holding fast? Have you been doing that? Jesus is Lord. His cross is your only hope. You give him praise for the new covenant blessings. Now to invert that passage we just read. And there's assurance to be had in, in that. There's fruit in your life to show that those things are true. The evidence of internal life, a new heart, that's all very encouraging. But let us not neglect the past in the right biblical way. Our own personal stories. Let us not fail to use our own personal stories with others and their stories with them like this preacher is doing for this church. This is why it's so important to be with a church for a long time. Because you go through things together with individuals and as a church and you see things over time and then you're immensely useful, increasingly useful as you've seen more and more people over more time. You can point this person to that person who went through something similar and watch them and see what the Lord did. And you can point this person to their own history. You have to be in long enough to do that. I don't plan on going anywhere. Pray to get many, 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 many more years with you to do that for you and hope that you can do that for me. I'm going to need it. I need it. One of the hardest things about moving is that the new Christians you're around, you're praising God to have found a church, but they haven't seen it. I don't know where you came from. And sometimes when you get a new preacher, you think they just came like that. I didn't come like this. I didn't come believing the Bible and confessing Jesus. This was a miracle. This happened when I was in eighth grade. Some believers praying for me in my public school and persisting with me in spite of some really strange things I said and depraved things I said and wasn't a great friend this year and stayed with me and hung with me and included me and prayed for me. There's all kinds of stories. You have your own. You don't need to know all of mine. But if you know me long enough, I pray you can get to know mine so you can use them with me. That in those first months as a Christian, I remember wanting to go to see you at the pole. And I knew that that would put me on record. I hadn't been baptized yet, but that was a simple way to to be on record as a Christian. As someone who prayed to the living and invisible God. I don't even know if they still do see you at the pole anymore. That's what we called it. One day a year, all the students in that school who confessed Christ would show up and, and pray. Pray for their peers like we did in private. I've still got that little bracelet that we'd wear around. I think it's a good idea, a little cheesy. Maybe it could look a little holier than thou. It came from a place of wanting to identify with Jesus in the face of some costs and and throwing up a little signal to anyone who needed God like I had found him. And God did that in me in those years. It's a miracle. Why was I doing that? Why was I willing to risk being socially out at this school? Looking for Christians when I moved across the country two years later. Looking out for Christian t-shirts is what I did. I actually like those. I know you're a Christian and I can ask where you go to church. You've got your own stories of what God has done. And I don't remember the exact time. I remember starting to wake up and go to church thinking, how do I know I'm in? And I remember asking a friend, walking from the, the, youth, the, the auditorium of the church to the youth portable where we would play crazy games and saying, what is it to be saved? And he explained, Jesus lived and died and rose for us. And if you believe this, confess with your mouth, trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, you can be forgiven and saved. I don't have to wait for camp. No. I started hearing about getting saved at camp. Okay. Um, So it was in the space of a handful of months where I remember waking up on Sunday and thinking, I'm a Christian. Maybe I should tell somebody and then slowly praying for other people and then then telling a friend about Jesus. I think I was a Christian. Now, there was a moment when I looked up at the preacher in that church. I don't need to to figure that Sunday out. So even for those of us who came to faith a few years into life, and can remember where and how that happened. We don't necessarily remember the moment. And even if you remember a moment, you might have been a Christian weeks before. There was just a moment in the course of a service or a camp that led you to articulate that in really clear ways. And maybe it was that moment in the preaching and how you were led that caused you to come to terms with the truth and then to articulate it. So I'm not to discount those moments. 
It's just to say that staying with Christ over time can give you encouragement to stay with him. And it can mean maybe you don't need to be afraid of with a fearful expectation of judgment. And you can use the past by looking back at the past to see what the Lord has kept you through. So you've stayed with Christ. And secondly, and we've worked our way into it a bit, you've suffered before man. Well, that's what he's talking about. Sometimes publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And then in verse 39 he says, we're not the ones who shrink back. It's shrinking back in fear. Not involuntary. There may be a moment when you, you distance yourself from Jesus, maybe like Peter did, and you repent and confess that and come to him. But this is that deliberate shrinking back. No, no, you've been publicly exposed, identified with Jesus in a way that puts you on record, that draws attention to you in a way that is uncomfortable. Reproach and affliction are uncomfortable. Mistreatment, even misunderstanding, are uncomfortable. But you've suffered before man. These folks had their property plundered. Some were put in prison. There are some historical circumstances that we can tie to this. But we only need what's on the page here to imagine. Plundering of property. That's when someone takes something from you on account of Jesus. Maybe it's your good name. You had a good name. And now you're being accused of being a bigot. You had a good name. And now you're accused of being self-righteous or unloving by some new fangled definition of what love is. And you misunderstood on that account. They take away your name, your job, a promotion that you wanted, but you would have needed to say that thing in that way. You would have needed to have done that thing to that person and taken that sale and lied over here or stayed quiet over here to stay good with that person. And you know that being a Christian in your job has, has meant you haven't been promoted like you might have been otherwise. Now, maybe being a Christian means you did get promoted. Maybe you're surrounded by believers or people who appreciate the contribution that you make as an honest person. And there are other honest people that work with you, I'm sure. So maybe it hasn't cost you, but maybe it has your job. Maybe it means the field that you got into you can't be in anymore because of what it takes and what you've got to do to stay in it. Maybe it means a certification is coming up that you won't be able to secure again. Or a sale with a client you won't make. Maybe it's taking relationships, a friend or a family member. Things are just not the same anymore. Jesus does come to divide in that sense. If you're with him, you aren't with them. And maybe they're good with that. Maybe that's greatly offensive to them. And you haven't feared them. And you haven't feared these job losses and the reputation issues because you fear the Lord. In which case, you really do have nothing to fear for you fear him. Prison, though, that's another thing. That's not taking something away from you. It's more than that. It's taking you away. Which leads us to the third sign. Solidarity with those who are so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Sometimes you were partners with those so treated who were, who were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. You're going to be tempted, whether it's our church and a church across town or across the country or up in Canada, you're going to be tempted to disassociate from a Christian or a church getting trouble from the state or a pastor getting trouble from the state because of a difference on tone or your views on the end times or you're not in that tradition. And friends, I have felt a sense of deep and personal solidarity with pastors arrested in Canada for meeting when churches weren't. And the science has vindicated them on that front. But whatever it was, they should have met anyways and some did, and some pastors were arrested, 
And no shortage of American Christians and pastors turned their head and were embarrassed. They're making a scene up there. I pray for the courage to do the same. You can come up with all kinds of reasons for the path of least resistance. Not meeting over so many months up there was a path of least resistance. I pray I would have been among those who met. Or a church in California or in D.C. with different governors and different dynamics. We have a little test case over the last two years. How did you do? Did you throw shade on pastors? Because they're the ones that are fired at in the news. And those are the ones that are hauled off to prison to scare you, by the way. Did you throw shade on other churches? And there may be microcosm versions of this in your own, in your own workplace. A Christian that talks a little too much and so you've a little distance. But they're getting trouble because they're actually a Christian. And this thing they're in trouble for, that's not right. But are you quiet? Well, you don't want to be confused with everything that they believe and say. Are they being persecuted and mistreated because they identify with Jesus? And is some of the things that you don't like about their manner, is that really just an excuse to give them trouble on the part of Christ's enemies. Well, don't be fooled yourself. It may be that you have to go online as calling out the mistreatment of a coworker who's a believer to be a partner with those so mistreated and have compassion on those in prison. Be ready for this. To identify with a Christian so mistreated or in prison will be to mark yourself out will increase your risk of the same trouble, will bring attention to your family, might mean your kid doesn't make that team or can't get into that school. You can press the details all the way down for yourself. You're sensible people and I don't need to do it for you. I need only to hold this out for you that one way you know you don't have anything to fear is by staying with Christ over time Suffering with Christ before man and showing solidarity with those who are so mistreated. Which means, friends, in our small groups and in our Christian friendships, as we're talking with one another through difficult parts of life, when obedience and allegiance to Jesus here means getting in trouble here, Take courage. (laughs) Uh, Be happy about it. Doesn't he say that? Weren't they? You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted. Now, you didn't ask for it. Don't ask for it. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How is that possible? Here's a great encouragement, and we owe it to each other. And yes, you have something to say to the one who is drifting and leaving the faith. And yes, you have something to say to the one who is off to prison, to the one who is losing their job, to the one who is having a hard time with a family member. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so the better we know each other's stories, and why don't you ask each other, what have you been through? Because you might need that in encouraging them later. The better we know each other's stories, the better we can use these accounts to help one another stay in the faith. I know what you've been through. Don't forget how you joyfully accepted, fill in the blank. And why did you do that? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And that possession, that abiding and better possession is still held out to us, stay with Jesus. And most of the time, hopefully, we're able simply to say to each other, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Oh, you all suffer loss well, and I pray that you will. Let's suffer with one another well. That sure is a test of things. 
and pray that we, that we will. So should you be afraid this morning? Well, that depends. But clearly enough, I pray, I've given you some signs. Some reasons maybe for to be disconcerted and to have a fearful expectation of judgment. But as I know you, on the whole, no saints, church, to be encouraged. For you do not shrink back, but you are of those who have faith and preserve your soul. Now, some are plotting to fall away, but that is not those that I sit across the table from and know so well. I am not thinking of you in the reading of this first part right here. So don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw it away. Keep it. Stay confident. Remember what the Lord has brought you through. And look ahead to your abiding in better possession. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And maybe this is some encouragement. This trouble you're undergoing and that we're undergoing will not last forever. But our reward will last forever. And what does this look like? Well, it could look like, that is, what does this endurance and faith look like in the meantime? It could look like, well, the stories from our own pasts that we hold out to each other. But it can also be helpful to look to the stories of the past. So while our author has pointed his readers to what they have been through, in chapter 11, he's going to point all of us to what the people of God have been through. Different people by name even. And so over the next several weeks, we will be in that famous chapter, that hall of faith it's called, Hebrews chapter 11, in which we get a better look at what the life of faith looks like. What it looks like to hold fast to our confession, to draw near to God, and to eagerly await that great reward that is to come. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have considered the worst thing that could happen to us, and we are grateful that the worst thing that could happen to us has happened to Jesus on our behalf. We thank you for his death, for our sins, and for his many sufferings. And we thank you that we are joyfully able to suffer with him and like him, even because of him, because our reward is very great. And we have a very great possession and inheritance. Would you make us to see it and to know it and to taste it and to believe it more this week and in the weeks ahead and every day until we meet Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.